I'm going to welcome me to Thrive Church. No, I'm just kidding. It's good to be home. It's good to see all of you. For those of you who don't know, um, we, uh, we, my wife, myself, along with uh, a team of 15 of us, not all from this church, from a few different churches, just got back from two weeks in the nation of Kenya, in Nairobi, um, and had an amazing time. And we're going to share, I, you know, I'd, I'd love to just this, this morning just jump in and just talk about Kenya, and I could probably go for hours, but there's actually a word that God's put in my heart this morning, a message for this morning, and so we're going to get to that uh, right away. We're going to hear some things in the midst of the message about Kenya, but just know this, um, we are planning uh, in the next few weeks, uh, gives us time to kind of settle in, because we're all, all of our, our sleep schedule is a little off. I talked to Lynn this morning. She said she's adjusted a little bit better. A couple of us, I know Alex and our family, uh, we're still adjusting. So at about 4.30 in the afternoon, we're ready for bed. And uh, we got to make sure that we're standing upright, because if we're sitting down, we'll be asleep. I'm waking up, though, at 4.30 in the morning, and I'm not a morning person. So maybe this is a, this is a good thing. Um, but like I said, it's good good to be home, and it's good to see all of you this morning. Um, before we jump into the message this morning, I do want to do two things. We Each Sunday uh, this year, w- one of our goals is to pray for another congregation here in the city of Glengo- Glendora. You know, there's one church. There's not multiple churches. There's one church. And we count it an honor and a privilege to be able to pray for the other churches, the other bodies, the other expressions of that one church meeting right here in our city. And so this morning, uh, we want to pray for the Vineyard Fellowship here in the city of Glendora. They meet over uh, at Wilcom High School. Um, Pastor, uh, Pastor Gaines uh, is actually a couple uh, that, that pastor that, that, that church. Jacob and Abigail Gaines lead that congregation. And so we're going to pray for them this morning. I also want to pray for the nation of Kenya. We got a report this week uh, right, a- right after us leaving. There had been increased activity by Al-Shabaab, the terrorist organization, and um, not where we were in Anchorage, I mean in, in, in Anchorage, where, where did that come from? In Nairobi, uh, towards the coast, Mombasa and the border of Somalia, there's been increased terrorist activity, and um, uh, you can read about it on the news, but we want to pray for that nation. Pastor Gary Keane, our missionary, reached out to me, and he said, please have your church pray uh, for the nation of Kenya. So we're going to pray for both Vineyard Church and for Kenya this morning. Vineyard Church is there, Whitcomb High School is about that direction. We extend our right hand as a sign of blessing, uh, as they did, did in Scripture, and so we're going to extend our hand that way. Father God, this morning we thank you for Vineyard uh, Church, also meeting in a school just like us, Lord, and for the way that they are faithfully ministering in this community. We ask for uh, for Abigail and J- Jacob Gaines, Lord, as they lead that congregation, I pray that you give them wisdom and strength and discernment, Lord, that they would hear from you in the direction that they're supposed to lead their church. Lord, give them greater influence in this community to love people well, and we'll give you praise for that. And Lord, we lift the nation of Kenya to you this morning, Lord. We stand with our brothers and sisters by faith this morning against the attack of the enemy. We recognize that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Lord, that, that Al-Shabaab and Al-Qaeda and, and ISIS and all of these, Lord, are, are, are there's a spiritual darkness behind them, God. And so we're, we, we stand against, we take our stand against, in Jesus' name, the spiritual strongholds that would want to come against the believers. I pray, Lord, that the people of Kenya and specifically the, the Christians, Christians in the nation of Kenya would take their stand in your name 
against the darkness that would try and infiltrate. Lord, we pray for those communities right on the border. We pray for protection over them, Lord. We pray for strength, uh, Lord, as they rely on you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> amen. Well, we are going to jump into a new series this morning. Um, over the, the last number of weeks, uh, I've been gone quite a bit. We've been to Kenya. Our family had uh, that trip to Alaska where we've gone for a couple of weeks. And so I'm looking at the next uh, number of weeks here in the summer and realizing I'm here. We're not going anywhere, and, uh, and we're going to jump into a new summer series. Um, this morning, the series that we're starting is entitled Unstuck. Unstuck. When you turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel, and the book of Hebrews chapter 6, Hebrews chapter 6, uh, if you want to take notes, there's a place on the bulletin where you can do that, uh, or you can take notes in your Bible. If you're one for marking up your Bible, there's going to be some passages this morning that I think you'll want to make note of. The verses, of course, will also be on the screen. You know, we've all felt stuck at times. Anyone ever felt stuck? You ever been stuck? Ever in driving and you got stuck? Uh, you know, if you're maybe in the mud or on the beach, we love going out to Pismo Beach, um, and there's always people stuck in the sand, or when we lived in Alaska, uh, we would get, see people getting stuck in the snow or in the snowbank. We've all been stuck, not just in a car, but in different places of our lives. The definition of stuck is this. Stuck is um, being unable to progress with a task or to find answers or solutions to something. Being unable to progress with a task or to find the answer or solution to something. It also means this, to be or become fixed or jammed in one place as, the, as a result of an obstruction. It goes on to say, there were many definitions for stuck. To remain in a static condition, to fail to progress. To be fixed in a particular position or unmovable, unable to move or to be moved. To be at a loss for or, un, or in need of. We've all been stuck. Now I'd ask you this morning, what are some of the areas of your life maybe where you've lost traction or momentum? If you're driving in a car in the snow, I remember the first time uh, really driving in the snow was here in Southern California. I grew up in South Africa where it didn't really snow ever at all. And so we had come to the U.S. As a, on a visit, and we actually went up to Lake Arrowhead. And right there in the Lake Arrowhead village, there's a parking lot. It was the first time I'd been in any significant amount of snow. And my dad, of course, was not used to driving in the snow. And so we had rented a little Dodge Caravan and, uh, and I remember in that parking lot, if you've ever been up there, you know there's, there's two ways to get out. There's kind of the long way around where it's just kind of a gradual slope. And then there's a little hill, but it's a short, steep hill that you have to get up. And uh, I remember we got stuck on that hill. It was icy, it was snowy, and we got about halfway up. And these South Africans who have never driven in the snow are halfway up the hill and we're not making any forward progress. And then there's that moment where the wheels are spinning, and then you start sliding backwards. And you're going, oh no, what do I do? How do I correct this? We've all been in a place where we've lost traction. Again, not necessarily in a car, but in our lives, where we feel like the forward momentum of our lives has somehow been stopped. 
My foot is still on the gas. I'm still trying to make forward progress, but I feel like all that's happening is the wheels are spinning and there's absolutely no momentum or even worse, backward momentum. Here's some places where you may feel stuck. I've felt stuck in different places like uh, of these areas in my life at times. First would be this, your relationship with God. Maybe you feel stuck in your relationship with God and and that your life today and your relationship with God today doesn't really look any different to what it did a year ago or maybe five years ago. Maybe at one point there was great traction, great momentum, but right now you're going, I just don't feel like I'm getting anywhere with the Lord and I'm not growing and, and nothing's really changing. Maybe you feel stuck in your calling what has God called you to be? Maybe there's a dream that he put on your heart. It was so cool talking uh, with Lynn, who was a part of our team, has been a part of this congregation for many years. She said that it was in her 20s that God spoke to her about going to Africa. Well, she's not in her 20s anymore. It took over 20 plus years for her to see that dream realized, and, and she's ready to go back tomorrow. If you see her, talk to her about that. Um, I, don't th- I don't see her in here. I think she's with our kids today. So how about that? She comes back from a missions trip, being gone two Sundays, and she's back with the kids because she just loves serving. But talk to her about that. Her calling, she felt like, I'm stuck. There's something God put on my heart. Maybe you felt this way. God spoke to me at some point in my life, and I've never seen that come about. I feel stuck. How about your marriage? Now, let me clarify, not stuck in your marriage. but stuck in that your marriage isn't growing and you don't feel like you're making forward progress that this year just feels like last year or maybe not even as good as last year. Maybe the last decade you just felt like we're not going anywhere in our marriage and God wants to bring freedom in that. Maybe in your parenting you get the idea, your finances, maybe it's habits or addictions. Things where you feel like, I'm stuck, I've, I've wanted to be rid of this, this habit or this addiction, this hang-up that I have, and I've wanted to be rid of this for years and years and years, and I've even tried and tried different things, and I just feel stuck. And maybe it's just your joy. Maybe there's joy lacking in your life, and you don't know how to get back to a place where there's joy in your heart, and you feel stuck. I want to tell you this morning that God never intended for us to live stuck lives. He never intended for us to live stuck lives, which is why our church is called Thrive Church. Because God intends for us to thrive, not just to survive, just not, to, not just to get by, but to actually thrive in our lives. He never intended for us to live stuck lives. Which I have to go on to say then, because he never intended for us to live stuck lives, I believe he gives us everything we need to get unstuck when we're stuck. That there's nothing in our lives where we can say, this part of my life is stuck and God can't help me. That in every sense of who we are and in every part of our lives that God says, I will give you and have given you everything you need to get unstuck. Unstuck. So over the next few weeks, we're going to unpack that because it's not enough for me just to say to you, God doesn't want you to be unstuck and he's giving you everything you need because I'm hoping the question bouncing around in your heart and mind is, well, what, what are those things? And maybe you have a good idea of what those are and maybe you don't. And so we're going to talk for the next uh, four or five weeks about what being unstuck looks like as we embrace the power of God 
in our lives. This morning, I want to focus on one thing. My message this morning has one point, has one point, and it's this. We have to focus on our anchor point, your anchor point. In order to be unstuck, the primary thing that has to happen is you have to realize that there's an anchoring point that God has given you. And you can try every other method to get unstuck, but until we anchor ourselves to that anchoring point, we're never going to get anywhere. A few years back, my late father-in-law and my brother-in-law went hunting up in Alaska. And I want to show you a picture of the hunting rig they, they used. Um, this is, this is them, it's my father-in-law on the right, my brother-in-law on the left, and his brother-in-law sitting on top of an old international military vehicle. And you'll notice that that military vehicle, well, right on the front is a moose, some moose antlers, they had a successful hunt, but, uh, but you'll notice that the tires on this truck are kind of different. They're actually airplane tires, they come off of a DC-3 aircraft. Uh, and then they have those chains on the wheels. And, and the reason for that is where they go hunting up in Alaska is it's all tundra. In fact, they're in a, an area that has some, some trees right there. But a lot of the areas where they go, it's just tundra and there's no trees. It's just the moss and, and, and low, low brush. And so they drive this truck all over and they get out into the middle of nowhere. They're, they drive for days, literally for days to get out into these hunting areas they won't see any other people. There's no cell phone reception, right? They're all out there by themselves. And they were sharing with me the story once where they got out into this area. And what happens in Alaska is during the winter, the ground freezes. And then in the summer, in places, not everywhere, but in places, the ground will thaw. And if you're not careful, uh, that, that place where it thaws just turns into mud um, and thick, goopy, sloppy mud. And so they're driving this big truck. They have a couple of ATVs as well that are kind of support vehicles. On the back of that truck is everything they need, their food, their provisions. They bring extra uh, their spare parts, tons of spare parts to fix the truck, their tools. Well, this thing weighs just tons and tons. And, and they get out into the tundra. They're driving along, and they discover that they're on a part of the ground that has thawed. And the truck starts sinking. In fact, the, the wheels just sink right down, uh, down to the axles. And they're stuck. It took them two and a half days to get unstuck. And part of the reason was they were a quarter of a mile away from the tree line. And so there was no anchor point. There was, you can see on the front of the truck, there's this huge winch, amazing winch, that can pull that truck out of any situation. The problem is, in order to use the winch, you have to have something to hook the winch up to. And so the, the length of their cable, the length of that reel was not long enough to actually reach back to the birch trees and the spruce trees along the tree line. And so they spent two weeks, I mean two days, not two weeks, two days with their ATVs going back to the tree line, chopping down trees, and then they would drag those trees back under and jam them under the wheels so that they would just move a little inch at a time, inch at a time until they were in a place where they could hook up that winch to one of the trees and were able to free themselves. Two and a half days, and, uh, and it was just back-breaking, slogging kind of work. We need an anchor point. Just like they needed a place where they could hook up to, they could set that winch to a solid point, a winching point, an anchor point. We need an anchor point in our lives, and God has been faithful to give us that anchor point. I want to start by looking in 1 Samuel 22, 
There's a story here of David, King David, before he is actually, he's already been anointed king, but he's not ascended to the throne yet. And in fact, in this point of David's life in 1 Samuel 22, it's a place where David has been pursued by King Saul. Saul is still a king of Israel, and he hates David. David, who had been like a son to him, Jonathan, King Saul's, uh, King Saul's son, was David's best friend. David had played his harp in King Saul's chambers and calmed uh, that, that unsettling spirit when it would come on Saul and him being close. Of course, he had killed Goliath, and, and, and so he had found himself very close to the king, but Saul was threatened by David, and so he had pursued him and was trying to take his life. And here in 1 Samuel 22, we find David hiding out because he's being pursued by Saul, and so he's just done. He's just done. Let's read this together. It says here in verse 1, David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. And all those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. So it's an interesting scene, and, and I think sometimes when we read the Bible, we read these verses, um, we go, well, that's a, that's a neat story, but you, really the best thing to do is to put ourselves in that situation, in that circumstance. David is being pursued by the king of a nation who has really dispatched his army to kill one guy. So you've got the entire army of the nation you're supposed to be king of pursuing you to take your life. Talk about being stuck. And not only that, you've been told by Samuel, who's the priest, the judge, and the prophet of all Israel, who's recognized as the say-so in that nation. He's come to your house, and he's anointed you and said, you will be king. Now you're hiding in a cave. This doesn't feel very kingly. doesn't feel like that is actually happening. I feel stuck. To add insult to injury, like I mentioned, he had killed Goliath. It's not that David hadn't experienced any kind of victory in his life. He had. But that victory seemed like so far, so long, such a long time ago, such a, a faraway thing at this point. Why? Because he's hiding in a cave. He's making backward progress, not forward progress. He has his own troubles. In fact, his life is full of trouble. And so he goes and he hides in a cave. What is he saying? Leave me alone. I just want to hide. Can you just leave me alone? Maybe you've been in a place where you're like, Would just, could you just leave me alone? And maybe this has happened to you in the same way that it happened to David. He's going, leave me alone. But what happens his family shows up for dinner, right? You ever had just a bad day and then there's a knock at the door and it's family, extended family going, hey, surprise, we're here. And you're going, I just want to be alone. Just leave me alone. I'm hiding out. The doors are closed. The, the, the blinds are pulled, right? The, the porch light isn't even on. Leave me alone. But of course, because you're such a wonderful person, you invite them in and you make them dinner. David is hiding out 
He's hiding out, and his family shows up at the cave. Hey, Dave, we're here. I don't want you here. I'm stuck. My life is stuck. The king's trying to pursue me. The king of Gath is after me. God doesn't seem like he's on my side anymore. Samuel, I don't know where he is. And all those crazy things he told me about being king doesn't seem to be working out. So the family is there with him, and I'm sure they're not really being a huge encouragement to him. But it doesn't stop there. Then the Bible tells us that these 400 show up. 400 men, probably with their families in tow, so there's probably more like 1,000 to 2,000 people that show up at the cave. Leave me alone. Now, I imagine if you're David, you're thinking, awesome, some soldiers, some fighting men. Then he discovers that these 400, this is the way they were described. It says they were in distress, they were in debt, and they were discontented. And if I'm David, I'm going like this. Really? This is what you bring to me. I'm trying to hide out. My family shows up, and then this miserable lot show up on my doorstep. Really, God? Are you punking me? Because I was stuck enough, and now I'm stuck with this bunch of people. It says they were in distress. They had a lot of problems. You're not, you're, you're not usually in distress unless there's something going wrong in your life. They were distressed. They were experiencing the wrong kind of distress in their lives. It says they were in debt. Not only did they not have money, they owed other people. We've been there before. So whatever is, happens to come in is going right back out to pay off those debts. I mean, if David had a bunch of people that showed up and said, listen, we're having a hard time, but we come with a lot of money. <laughs> I know pastors like this. Um, it's all right if your life is a mess. As long, as long as you have a lot of money, it'll make it okay. No, they don't even have money. We're in debt. We're in distress. And then it says this, they're discontented. Which when you unpack the meaning of that in the Hebrew, it basically means this. They had lost the will to live. They were alive on the outside and dead on the inside. They had nothing left to live for. So they show up at the cave. And David, who's already stuck, is now stuck with this bunch. But I love this. It doesn't say David sent them away and said, Go away, leave me alone, I don't want you around, you're bumming me out, you're dragging me down. It says this, he became their commander. He became their commander, about 400. Later on there would be another 200. As you continue to read this story, and I'd encourage you, go home today, take some time, read those chapters in 1 Samuel amazing stories of what God did from here up through chapter 29 and 30 with with Ziklag and that city. The way that God moved in David's life was amazing. We have to remember this in Scripture, that David is in Scripture a foreshadowing, a picture of who Jesus would be and what he would do. See, you look at this 400 And everyone in this room, I know, would say this. That's not the army I would pick. 
If you've ever been on the sports field, maybe when you were a kid, maybe more recently, and you do this, you, you are going to play a pickup game of soccer. We'll go with soccer because I was just in Kenya, so we're all about the soccer right now. Um, we took 40 soccer balls with us, by the way. It was amazing. We're passing those soccer balls out. It, the kids were, you've never seen kids so excited about a soccer ball in your life. But you've been in this place where there's a group of kids, and so you pick the two team captains, and they stand there, and then everyone lines up. You remember this? You ever done, anyone ever done this? Right? And then it's the job of the two captains to pick their teams, right? And if you're the team captain, who are you picking? The best, the fastest, the strongest, the ones that have most skill. When I was a kid, I was usually one of the last ones picked because I was not athletic. I, wasn't, I didn't have good ball handling skills, and I just knew they're not going to pick me right up front. And you get down to those last couple of kids, and you feel bad for them, right? And they feel bad for themselves, and everyone feels bad, but the reality is you're not that good at soccer, so we're not going to pick you. I guess I'll take you. You can be on my team. The group that David has as his army are the last ones that anyone would pick to be their army. The thing is that that group showed up to David without him asking them to come. David is a foreshadowing of Jesus. See, because Jesus does something different. He looks at the lineup and he picks the least likely, the unqualified, and the broken. And he says, I choose you. In fact, David himself was that guy. Remember when Samuel shows up to anoint the new king and Eliab, his big brother, walks out, right? And every step the ground is shaking and he's got his spear and his sword. I am Eliab. And Samuel's like, this is the guy. And God says, nope. Because God doesn't look at the outward, he looks at the heart. Go through all of David's brothers, and finally David, little Davy, who's out watching the sheep. Jesse, his dad, is even like, oh, that's right, David, right? (laughs) Come on. By the way, do you think that popped into David's mind at the cave? Yeah, now you know who I am, right? Now you're finding me. Back then, you didn't even remember that I existed. Jesus picks the broken he, he picks the unqualified. He picks those of us, and that's all of us, who have nothing to offer. He says, I, I pick you. What's amazing about David and these 400 is they become a mighty army. Later, there's another 200 that get added. And it says of them that they did amazing things. And by the way, there wasn't like a cooling off period. David didn't say to them, listen, in about five years, we're going to go through some programs and we're going to do some, some, read some books together and we're going to do some studies. And we're going to do some discipleship. In about five years, hopefully some of you will qualify. In fact, in the next chapter, he leads them into battle and they are victorious. Because it's all about who you're following. It's all about who your anchor point is. So much so that later on, out of that 400, there are 40 who are listed as David's mighty men. And it lifts them by name in Scripture and the things that they accomplished. They were awesome. But they started out in distress. They started out in debt. And they started out discontent. But it's not where they ended up. So here's this picture of what Jesus does. Jesus chooses you. 
He's chosen you before the foundations of the earth, the Bible says. He chose you. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 through 20, we read this. It says, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and they followed him. Here's the thing about uh, Simon, Simon called Peter and Andrew. We read about them and we go, those guys were amazing. They were disciples. At this point, though, we have to remember that they're just fishermen. They didn't finish school. They weren't educated. They had no stature. They were just fishermen. They were unqualified. They were unlovely. They smelled bad. Why? Because they were fishermen. And Jesus is walking along and he says, you guys, I'm picking you, I choose you. And he chooses 10 other guys who were unqualified, who were unlovely, who were the wrong people to pick. But Jesus says, you're going to be my all-star team. Why? Because Jesus doesn't pick the qualified. He picks the unqualified and then he qualifies them, he He takes us as we are, and he says, I choose you. Andrew and Peter would have characterized their lives this way. I'm stuck being a fisherman. It doesn't matter if there's something else I'd rather do. I am stuck being a fisherman. This is my life. This is the way it's always going to be. And they turn and they say, yes, I will follow you. We will follow you. And here's what's the amazing thing is about that. We are here today because those two and 10 other guys like them said yes. Because they became the ones that Jesus said, I'm going to send you into all the world to to share the gospel. And we are here as a direct result of what their actions were over 2,000 years ago. Jesus is choosing you. But I need to ask you this question. See, because they said yes when he said, come follow me. It says that at once they left their nets and followed him. But I need to ask you this question. What place does Jesus occupy in your life? What place does Jesus occupy in your life? Who is Jesus to you? Now I recognize I'm talking to a lot of people who I know I have relationship with and I I know that you believe in Jesus. I know that you've walked with Jesus. I know you have a relationship with Jesus. And maybe there's some of you today that maybe Jesus and the idea of Jesus is something that's new to you. Let me ask you this. Is Jesus just a nice idea? I like the sound of Jesus. He sounds good. Sounds like a good guy. Maybe you just think of him as a good teacher. He said some really cool stuff. Some of the stuff he said, I could leave it. It's, it's okay. But there's some of the things that, that he said, I find really helpful in my daily life. Is he more like a good luck charm? Where you just kind of pull him out when things are going bad and you need a little extra hope. And so you say, oh, I'm going to just pull Jesus out. 
Or is he like 911? Is he on call when you need him? There when you need him, but otherwise he's forgotten. Like I don't get up during, in the morning and go, man, I'm sure glad 911 is there. Right? Hey, let me just check my phone real quick and make sure there's a dial tone just in case I need to call 911. I don't even do that. But when I need it, I'm picking up the phone and I'm dialing 911. Is that the kind of place Jesus has in your life? Where he's there when you need him, but otherwise, take it or leave him. Or is he this? Is he your Lord? Is he your King? And is he your God? Is he your all in all? Is he your savior, your deliverer, your healer, your restorer, your transformer? Is Jesus your anchor point? Is Jesus your anchor point? Because here's the truth, church. It doesn't matter what else we do in life. If Jesus is not your anchor point, you will be stuck. And you cannot get unstuck unless Jesus is your only anchor point. And that's not a once in a lifetime thing. That's not when you just first come to him for the first time and say, Lord, Jesus, I I receive you into my heart. Maybe you prayed a prayer. Jesus isn't your anchor point once. He's your anchor point every single day, every moment of the day, every hour of the day. If Jesus is not your anchor point, you are missing out. I guarantee if he's not your anchor point, you are stuck. You might not even know that you're stuck because you can hear the engine running and your foot is on the gas and something is working, but you're not making forward progress. If Jesus is not your anchor point, you're stuck. I love the timeliness of God's word. I did the Solid Life reading this morning. We follow a, a reading plan in our church called the Solid Life Reading Plan. You can find it at the back. There's a bookmark that has the, the plan. And, um, and I love that God's word is always timely. The reading this morning, a part of the reading was out of Hebrews chapter 6. And it says this in 6, 619 verse 20. We have this hope. What hope? The hope of Jesus Christ who is standing before God the Father on our behalf when the enemy comes and says, that that person right there, they're a loser. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I chose them. I chose him. I chose her. And it says that the accuser, the enemy is always there wanting to disparage us. And Jesus says, no, I chose him. I chose her. So we have that hope as what? As an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. There's a whole lot there I can't unpack right now. The idea is this, that the high priest is the one who would be the go-between between man and God. And God, Jesus became our high priest forever, for eternity so that there would be no separation between God and man. That's who Jesus is at this very moment. Not in theory, but in reality, in a realm that we cannot see, but we know is very real. That Jesus is saying daily, I chose you. He calls you by name. I chose you. I chose you. We have that hope as an anchor for our soul.
Our worship team is chuckling, by the way, because they did not know I was preaching this today. And do you, did you notice how many times the word anchor showed up today? <laughs> That's not good planning on our part. That's the Holy Spirit at work. Why? Because he needs you to know this. He needs you to know this. See, when Jesus is the anchor of your soul, you can, un- you can withstand storms worse than you've ever experienced in your life up to this point. I want to share a couple of testimonies from Kenya. I love this. That when you go to Kenya and someone shares their story and you're introduced, it always starts this way. And you can check with Isaac. Isaac, by the way, thank you, brother, for bringing the word last week. We appreciate you. Isaac is from Kenya, and you can, so you can verify this with him afterwards. We would go into these, these sewing centers, into these churches, or into these schools, and, and so our leaders would ask different people, the people that were leading us, they would ask different folks in those places, would you share your testimony? Usually after we had been served tea and mandazi, which is a donut, which is awesome. Um, and they would start this way every single time. Praise the Lord. And everyone would say, amen. And then they would say this, praise the Lord again. In Swahili, it's buena asafiwe. Praise the Lord. Every conversation started that way. Buena asafiwe. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord again. And then it would go on to this. My name is. So if it was me sharing, I'd say, my name is Barry, and I am saved. My name is Barry, and I am born again, and I praise God because he has made all the difference in my life. And then they would proceed to tell their stories. And their stories did not line up with the words they said at the beginning. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord again. I give thanks to God because he's made the difference. Because when you hear their stories, you cannot imagine. And you know that they're not giving you the full picture. They're watering it down so that they don't just freak you out. I want to share a couple of those stories this morning. This first lady, her name is Grace. I have a picture. Oh, the other one, sorry. That's Grace. We met her in Kibera Slum. Kibera Slum is the largest slum on the continent of Africa. Around a million people, probably more, live in Kibera. It's one of the darkest places, one of the hardest places to live on the planet. People living in homes that are smaller than the size of this rug that I'm standing on. Grace started sharing her story, and at first... She shared about hardship growing up, and, and there was a lot of hardship, but she got to a point in her story where she met the man who would become her husband, and, and this man turned out to be a Christian, and he's the one who led her to the Lord. And it was one of the first times in all the years I've been going to Kenya that I heard the story of a man who loved Jesus, because most of the women that we encountered had been beaten and abused and abandoned by their husbands. They would literally drive them to Nairobi, into Kibera slum, push them out the door of the vehicle, and then drive away, never to be seen again. Grace starts sharing her story, and she's sharing about this man that told her about Jesus, and how he was a good man, and how he loved her children, and how he had influenced her and impacted her. 
And we're thinking, wow, this is so different to every other story we've heard. And I'm thinking in the back of my mind, Lord, please let this end on a high note. Grace then starts sharing about how her husband died three months ago. At a church service, at a prayer meeting, he was in the middle of praying. He was the one leading. And at the end of the prayer, says that she said that everyone in the group had their heads down. And I tell you what, you've not been in a prayer meeting until you've been in a Kenyan prayer meeting. It is powerful. They do these Kesha services where they start on Friday night at like 6 p.m. and they go to sunrise on Saturday. And everyone's praying out loud at the same time, and it is loud. Well, this man is praying, and he got to the end of his prayer, and he had his hands up in the air, and the words amen never came out of his mouth. He died right there standing up. They had to lay him down. And so Grace is just sharing, and she, of course, started her testimony. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord again. My name is Grace, and I'm safe. Now, the words weren't easy. She didn't say them just as a, as, a, as a point of rote. She struggled through them. She said them as a declaration. And she got very real. She was the last person to share her testimony, in fact. And a whole bunch of us on our team had shared. Usually, the Kenyans in the room would share, and then a couple of our team would share. Grace waited. And it seemed like she wasn't going to share. And I noticed that she hadn't shared. And I think at a point where she felt somewhat safe, she said, I'd, I'd like to share my testimony. <coughs> so fresh and so real were, is the wounding in her life that even the other ladies in the room, lady ne next to me, Anne, had to get up and walk out because she was weeping. But they all started their testimonies this way. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord again. I'm saved, I'm born again, and I praise God because he has made the difference in my life. We got to minister to Grace, we got to pray with her, and we're thankful for the ministry of Jacaranda that has reached out to her and is helping to support her and her children. This next lady's name is Judy. She's with Felicia, one of our team members. Judy is one of the key leaders for Jacaranda in their ministry. She oversees all of their child sponsorships and they have literally hundreds of kids that are sponsored for school all over the city of Nairobi. Judy knows every single one of them by name. I know because we were sorting through a stack of pictures. Who's this kid? I know who they are. I know their story. And she goes every week. She travels on matatus on these uh, taxis to go and visit each of these kids to check in with them, make sure that they're healthy, that they're getting the medication they need. Many of these children are HIV positive. Most of the women at Kibera Slum uh, are HIV positive, and they need a strict regimen of medication to keep them alive. But we had the Jacaranda team over to our the place where we were staying, and we asked them, would you share some of your stories? We've heard the stories of the people you serve, but would you share your stories? Judy started sharing her story. She lived in the southeast portion of the country, and her parents both died when she was eight years old at separate times, but within the same year, her parents died. She went to go live with another family. I can't remember if it was her fam immediate family of hers or just a family she knew, but she's eight years old, and immediately, because she is not a part of that family unit, her responsibilities are more than everyone else. So she's getting up at four o'clock in the morning to milk the goats, to pick up the eggs, to, to milk the cows, 
to come in to carry water, to go to the stream, to pick up water and carry water into the house at eight years old to collect firewood. At that point, she would go to school because she loved going to school. At a certain point, though, she just can't go to school anymore. The family prevents her from going to school because she needs to do work around the house. And it all came to a head for her when the man in the home strung her up in a tree and whipped her as she hung in a tree. So she ran away. She's now in her teens. She ran away, got on a train, went to the next city. She was met there by a woman she didn't know. She met some woman on the train track on the, uh, at the station, and that woman introduced to her to a man in the community who enslaved her and made her his wife. She was locked up in the house. She bore him three children, um, but she was never allowed to lead, uh, leave, and she uh, uh, was suffered in, in unimaginable abuse in that place. That man ended up dying, and so she escaped with her children and moved to Nairobi, ended up in one of the slums in Nairobi. And it's there that she met one of the ladies who was a part of Jacaranda. And this lady invited her to Jacaranda Christian Fellowship, the church that we visited just a couple weeks ago. And Brenda Keene, our missionary and the one who started Jacaranda, that Sunday gave Judy a hug and welcomed her and said, I love you. Had never met her and said, I love you. And Judy broke down because it was the first time in her life that anyone had ever embraced her and given her a hug and told her that she was loved. Judy introduced herself. She said this, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord again. My name is Judy and I am saved. And I praise God because he has rescued me and made all the difference in my life. Now, here's what I know about Judy's testimony. She left out the details, the hardship. What is it about people that they can walk through those kinds of circumstances and say with a smile on their face, praise the Lord? Church, it's simply this. Jesus is not an idea to them. He's not a, a charm. He's not just a good teacher. Jesus is their anchor point. He is absolutely their anchor point. Because when you are living in a hut, in a little tin shack in Kibera slum, where a dirt floor, when it rains, all the sewage from the homes up, up the hill from you, flow through your house under your feet. When you're in that kind of circumstance, there is nothing else except for Jesus Christ. He is the anchor of their lives. David knew this. In 2 Samuel 22, it says this, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge, and my savior. From violent people, you save me. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise and have been saved from my enemies. The waves of death swirled about me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I called out to my God. From his temple, he heard my voice. My cry 
came to his ears. David goes on to say in Psalm 40, verse 1 through 3, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. And he set my feet on a rock and he gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Church, it doesn't matter where you feel stuck today. Whether you feel stuck or whether you are stuck, God is wanting to set your feet on the rock. That picture that Christy gave after worship, that we are sitting in the dirt, in the muck, and the mire, and God is extending his hand to us. But he is saying this to you, and he's saying this to me. You have to choose me. I've chosen you, but you have to choose me. You have to choose that I will be the anchor of your life. Not just today, and not tomorrow, and then maybe on Wednesday, but every day during every waking moment. He's chosen you, but are you choosing him? Because he will give you a firm place to stand. He will put a song in your mouth. That's called a testimony. Micah referenced that. Thrive Stories. He will put a song in your mouth so that you will be able to say, praise the Lord, praise the Lord again because I was there and now I'm here and I've got a long way to go, but praise the Lord for what he's done. That's your testimony, which the Bible says is powerful. It says that people will see, many will see and fear the Lord. People will see and you will have a witness of what God has done in your life. So when you come across other people who are stuck and they go, what is it about your life? And you can say, praise the Lord, praise the Lord again. My name is and I am saved and I give praise to my God because he has made all the difference. He has chosen you, whether you felt like you should have been chosen or not. I'm the 80-pound weakling on the field. I can't even kick the ball. The ball kicks me. God says, I choose you. You can't disqualify yourself because you don't have that authority. God says, I choose you. I want to set your feet on the rock. I want to close with this. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, the first part of that verse says this. Same chapter, by the way, where it talks about Jesus as the anchor of our soul. This was in this morning's reading. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. I believe that so many people in the church here in the U.S. and even around the world are not stuck. We're just refusing to grow up. We're not stuck. We're immature. And Jesus is saying, who am I in your life? I'm not a good luck charm. I'm not just there when you need me, though he is there when you need him. He has to be your all in all. He has to be your Lord. It says of David that the 400 came to him and he became their commander. That Jesus wants to be your Lord, your Savior, your King, your Commander-in-Chief. 
This is who he wants to be in your life. Church, do you feel stuck today? If you do, you need to attach yourself to the anchor point, the only anchor point there is. His name is Jesus Christ. And I don't know, I don't, it doesn't matter to me whether you're hearing about him for the first time or you've, you say you've known him for 25, 30, 40, or 50 years. If he is not right now in this moment, the anchor point of your life, you are stuck. And he wants to help you become unstuck. Over the next few weeks, we're going to look at some of the other ways that Jesus helps us, that God enables us and, get, and equips us to move forward from immaturity to maturity, from stuckness into a place where we feel the momentum of God's hand in our lives so that we can declare over and over and over again, praise the Lord, praise the Lord again. Which, by the way, we're just going to start, we're just going to be a Kenyan church Let's just do that, right? Yeah, you're ahead of the curve. Buena Sefiwe. Because there should always be a place where we can say, praise God for what he's doing. Because he's the anchor. We're going to look at some of the other ways, some of the other tools, some of the other methods that God says, this is how I help you move forward from childhood into adulthood, from stuckness into momentum. But I want you to do something. If this is stirring your heart, and I pray that it is, I pray that God is, is, is touching every nerve ending in your spiritual being, that there is a response, that Jesus says, I've chosen you, but that you would choose him. So much of this is internal, though, and what it needs is for you to make a response. And so I would say this, over these next few weeks, starting today, would you go home and would you identify those stuck places in your life? Where is it that you feel stuck? Write it down. If you have a Bible, write it in your Bible. Write it in the back. I have an empty page in my Bible. I'm going to write those things. This, God, right now, on this date, this is where I feel stuck. God, would you help me get unstuck? And start seeing how God will show himself faithful in those places. He wants to be your anchor point. Can we stand together as the worship team comes forward? We're going to sing, King of My Heart. Because that's who he is. Jesus is the king of your heart. At least that's who he should be. And so as we sing these words again, would you sing it as a declaration? If God is meeting you in this moment, if he is challenging, if he is calling you out or calling out to you, would you sing these words as a declaration? And then would you take the time, would you write those things down? God, I need to be unstuck in these areas of my life. And then let's start hearing the testimonies. My goal is this, at the end of this series, as we conclude the summer, as kids get ready, back, go back to school, I'd like to have a testimony Sunday. And I'd love for this altar up here, for this place up here to be filled with people who will stand up and say, praise the Lord, praise the Lord again. Here's what God has done in my life in the last six weeks. Someone in here right now is doubting and saying, that can't be me. 
greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. God can do it. And it may take some work and it may not feel very comfortable, but God is able and he will do what he says he will do. He will accomplish what he says he can accomplish. So Father, this morning, we cry out to you. We need you, Jesus. We need you. You are our life. You are our source. You are our strength. You are our rock. And God, for so many of us, we are stuck in the mud and in the mire and in the muck of life, and we don't know how to move forward. But Jesus, today, would you lift us out of the mud, and would you set our feet on the rock? I want to ask this morning, with every head bowed and every eye closed, so you have a moment with Jesus. If you have not made Jesus the Lord of your life, if you have not received, received him as your Lord and Savior at any point of your life, you've never prayed a prayer and said yes to Jesus, if you've never made him your anchor point, and this morning you're saying, Lord, I need to do that, Barry. I need to do that. I'd like to give you that opportunity. If that's you, you've never said yes to Jesus, and you'd like to do that today, would you simply raise your hand? So I can agree with you. Simply lift your hand in the air. Thank you. Thank you for that. I see that hand. Praise the Lord. Anyone else today that would say, yes, I need Jesus in my life. Thank you, Lord. The Bible tells us when one person, one person says yes, when one person surrenders their life and says, Jesus, I need you, it says that there is a party in heaven like we can't even imagine. God rejoices with his angels over one person. So praise God. I want to move on. I want to ask a second question, then we're going to pray a prayer together. If you're at a place in your life right now where Jesus has ceased being the anchor point and he's become more like a good idea or a good luck charm, and you're ready to move back to a place where you're ready to put Jesus at the center of your life and attach everything your marriage, your family, your finances, your hang-ups, your work, your hopes, your dreams. You're ready, you are ready to attach everything to him. If that's you this morning, would you boldly raise your hand in the air this morning and I will agree with you. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else this morning? I don't want to miss this opportunity. Anyone else today saying, I need to attach my life fully back to Jesus Christ? I see that hand in the back. Can we all pray this prayer together? Jesus, I need you. I need you in every part of my life. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. And I put you in the rightful place as my God, as my Lord as my king and my commander. Thank you, Jesus, that you chose me before I chose you, that you were setting my feet upon the rock. Help me, Jesus, to move forward in the strength you are giving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we praise the Lord together in this place?
Thank you, Jesus. We praise your holy name. We honor you, God. We honor you. Let's sing this together as a declaration of praise.